So when I have like bad half or, you know, team reorgs and there's ambiguity, I just say to my North Star, everything I need to do is in service of normalizing multiculturalism. Because if I put ads out there and I work on campaigns that are for the purposes of employing for Facebook, but they are, they, they, they represent the full spectrum of the dimensions of diversity. Even if that, even if an underrepresented person sees that, it doesn't necessarily take the action. Think about how many other people are seeing that ad, and it, it normalizes for them that that the the black engineer is a normal thing. Being a Latina head of finance is a normal thing. That having a woman run product is very normal. A new Asian woman run product. It normalizes that for not only the people who get to see themselves reflected, but for everyone else. And so. I think about the impact that advertising can have, and that for me is it, and that's how it centers me in my in my career. And I think having confidence that I'm doing everything I can to that goal is what gives me that confidence to push boundaries, to test my leaders, to ask provocative questions, because I'm going to hold them to account. Yo, 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 what up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of the Key Intuitors podcast brought to you by Plural. That was a clip from this week's episode with the homie Monse. Before getting into the full episode, let me just give you a quick little bio on Monse. She is a passionate marketing and advertising professional with expertise in multicultural audiences. She's actually worked across various companies like Publicis Group, Pandora, and Facebook. In 2018, she was even named top 40 under 40 Latinos in Chicago by Negocios Now and was also Chicago Latino Network's 2017 Latina Professional Award finalist. These days, Monse serves as a global diversity employment brand marketing manager at Facebook, where we both met. In this role, she leads global strategy and activation development across the recruiting function. She drives the scaled innovation in culturally relevant brand building programs that enable a global recruiting organization to attract the world's top diverse talent. You're going to hear a lot about the work that she does in this episode and why it's so important to her and really gives her direction into her everyday life. In her words, it's really her North Star. Now, one more thing before we get into the episode. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, please do us a favor. Leave a review, leave a comment, like, share, subscribe. I know specifically that if you're listening on Apple, there is an opportunity to leave a review. Please do so. With that said, let's get into the episode. Yeah. All right. Um, well, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, let's just start off, you know, how we start off the episode. You know, when people tell you to be your authentic self or when you hear the word authenticity, what comes to mind for you? Well, thank you for having me. I just want to like stop, stop there or start there, I should say, and just give you major kudos because I think this podcast and just everything you're doing is you living into your authentic self. So one, it's an inspiration. So I want to start there. Thank um, you. Yeah. I mean, you're doing great work. So I just, let's just pause and recognize it because we never really do and no one does it for us. And if we don't do it for ourselves, who's going to do it? Honestly, that's my, my therapist tells me that all the time. She's like, you, you, why are you always thinking about the next step? Like I have a small, I have, a, I have such a difficult time celebrating things, even if they're like really small. Well, with, even that, right. I'm calling this small, right. I'm like downplaying my success. It, it's right. like such a huge thing. My therapist would be, yeah, I can hear her talking to me about it right now. 
<laughs> wow. Wait, I see you drinking. What do you, what do you, what do you got there? I got my uh, mug too. I'm drinking a little coffee, a little Bustelo. Okay. Okay. I got a little Mexican canela right here. Starting my day. <laughs> there we go. There we go. All right. So speaking of starting my authentic self, I am a Mexican American, grew up on the South side of Chicago, um, had a kind of a weird of a pivot in, in life. I ended up going to a East coast prep school called Deerfield Academy. Some of the listeners may know it, especially if they're out East. Um, and now I am married. I live in the burbs of Chicago, so I no longer live in the city. Um, but I love it out here and I am a tech company marketer. So that's a little bit of kind of like the labels you would say, but who I actually am, my true authentic self is an British television junkie. I love their, I love their trash TV. I love their dramas, Edwardian Regent now with Bridgerton. I love it all. I am somebody who loves to play games, like board games, Loteria, Millennial Loteria. Like my friend Suraya just actually got me a um, Latina owned company that makes um, a Latina version of Loteria. So it's like la estudiante, la doctora, la jueza. So I just love playing games with my family, my friends, especially right now in COVID, I've been doing a lot of that. So that's very much my authentic self. And then I think I'm also like a dog mom. I, there's a serious codependency happening right now <laughs> where we're at home and we've been home for 10 months and we love each other and hang out with each other. I put them away for now so that they're not interrupting us, but, um, but that's me. That's who I am. I love that. So many, so many different things brought to life in there. Um, talk to me a little bit about like growing up in Southside Chicago. Like I'm not from Chicago, so like my perspective and perception of Chicago is really just like what I hear in rap songs, either that or the fucking pendejo in chief um, talks about Southside and just how like terrible it is. Right. And like dangerous and all these things. But I didn't even know that there was like a Mexican population there. Like what, what's the dynamic of it over there? Yeah. So Chicago is actually like 33% uh, Hispanic Latino. What? Yeah. And it's, it, there's several, it's not just like one and it's not all in one area. So I grew up in the kind of Mexican immigrant community of La Villita um, for the most part of my life. And then also back of the yards and then Brighton Park. So Chicago, a lot of the neighborhoods are named after the parks that are nearby. So Brighton Park is where I, I grew up, next to McKinley Park, for example. Uh, but it's one of the larger um, Latino communities. And then there's a really large black community. And then there's a big Irish community also on the South side. It tends to be very segregated to be quite honest. Uh, it's, I think we're one of the most segregated cities. But growing up, you know, you, I think the, the thing that probably best defines it is the, the urban planning. Like when Chicago was planned, the cities are very clear, north and south, east and west. And they're on the south side, they're numbered. So I would say I grew up on 35th. Somebody in the black community might say like in Hyde Park, I grew up on 55th. Uh, and I'm from Beverly, I live on 105th. And so like they, it's, it's actually really interesting how the city's kind of broken out, but the Latino community that I grew up with is, is really, I think dynamic in that it, there's so much happening there right now. You have kind of the immigrant population that definitely comes and moves there because there's a street, 26th street, again, going back to the numbers, uh, that's really the, the kind of the, the heart and the crux of that community. And it's a ton of Latino-owned small businesses from everything you can imagine, from the quinceanera dress store to the income tax place where they you know, speak Spanish and can help you all in language, 
some of the better restaurants, I would argue, are on that street. Um, like literally anything. And and what I love about it is that um, I, I recently learned that that street, when it comes to sales tax in Chicago, generates more tax revenue for the city from this community and the small businesses that are on it than these high-end luxe stores that are on what are kind of the downtown area, kind of the equivalent of like the Park Avenue or the Fifth Avenue, where you have your your Nike, the Cartier, the Burberrys, the, the, the these huge um, stores. And so this block actually generates more tax than those high-end luxury department stores and, and stores on that strip. So it's interesting because I think it, it just shows the vibrancy of this community. You have all the immigrants, you have the small business owners, but then you also have those second, third generation kids that want to stay there. They live close to their families. There are a lot of multi-unit houses there. And so it's a really interesting dynamic in, in the community. And I, I love going back there for the food, Atotonico on 26. It's the place I go to. If you're, come, if you're listening and you're coming to Chicago, that's the spot for the tacos. I love that. That is a wild stat. And they say that we don't have buying power, right? Look at that. They're fools. <laughs> Wait, so tell me, so it sounds like the culture was just all around you, right? Specifically like Mexican, Latino culture. What, was it easy just like feeling Mexican or was, because um, I know that you grew up in, in the States, not necessarily in Mexico. So like, what was that like? Just like, did you feel proud? Was there some insecurity around like growing up here and not over there? Like, what was that like? So there's always a dynamic of like here and there. And I think the dynamic is actually more parental, I would say. Like, I think when my mom and dad, they were like, well, we're Mexican, we're Mexican. I'm like, yeah, but we're in America. And that dynamic was always really weird. And it's, it's, it's very hard for me to say like, I'm just Mexican because I am so American. I, I can't kind of deny that, which does create some conflict on my Latinidad, right? Like, how Latina am I? How Mexican am I? You know, they, they, I get, I go there, same, same Selena story. I go there, they think I'm American, I'm here, they see me I'm Mexican. So it's yeah. that constant dynamic. But growing up in La Villita, I went to Saucedo, Scholastic Academy, and everyone was Mexican or Latino or minority. So it was actually very diverse um, where I was not a minority. And, and you kind of grow up with this community and it feels very normal. And you know, I think um, Glenn Singleton talks about losing your racial innocence. And for me, that happened, like I said, when I went to that East Coast boarding school and I was one of like five Latinos at the school of 600. And wow. that's the first time I actually felt like a minority. I looked around and I was like, no one's like me. Oh, and why are these boys wearing pink pants? <laughs> like, like, this makes no kind of sense. And then everyone's in like full dress code, but they're wearing flip-flops. And I'm like, wait, this is so confusing to me because it just wasn't the kind of like culture that I had seen and, and, and grew up like, you know, this is in the, like the 2000, 99, 98, 2000, where like tight bell bottoms on girls were like the thing. I don't know if that was <laughs> what it was like in New York, but that was like the thing for us growing up. And you go to the store and it, I mean, to the school and it's like pastel, Lily Pulitzer. And I'm like, what is this? You know, I'd never picked up a J. Crew catalog until I went to this school. And, and it really, I, it, it happened during some of my most formative years. Like think about anybody listening, right? Like that 14 to 18, like high school, how much you're changing your personality, your interests, the things you're into, the things, your hopes and dreams and aspirations, whether they're college or professional, like they really are formulated during this time period. And so here I am, this Southside Mexican girl going to Deerfield, Massachusetts, 
and being surrounded with the kids of the 1%, like, I swear to God, I shit you not. I have distinct memories of looking out my dorm window and seeing a helicopter landing on the quad. What? I don't even, I don't, can't even remember to be honest who it was, but like that is so outrageous to me now that I look back, but it just really goes to show that I was so out of my element from having, uh, from where I grew up. And I think that that happens to a lot of us where, you know, for me, I left that community, that shelter when I was 14, that might be happening for most people when they're leaving the comunidad, when they're 18, going to college and going to probably a predominantly all white institution, whether it's their state school or out of state, there's that transition. For me, it just happened a little bit earlier and during some of more of my, my more formative years, I would say. Yeah, a little earlier, this four <laughs> years, like you, you have to grow up so fast, so young. Yeah. First of all, like, why did you even go to that school? I'm just curious. Like, did your, did your family want you to go? Did you personally want to go? I'm sure it was like, oh, it's a better education system. But like, what was that whole conversation like? Because I'm sure it wasn't just like, oh, I'm just going to go, right? I'm sure there was like, no, I don't want to go or like, you know. Yeah. So the, a lot of people were like, oh, what did you do? <laughs> like, <laughs> what did you? <laughs> yeah. Like, what did, that's always the what did you do? Because like boarding school is not really normal. Uh, but it really just goes down to like education. My, my mom used to always tell me this story uh, that in Mexico, when she essentially finished what was like eighth grade, her parent, like there was no more school in the small little like, you know, pueblito that my mom grew up in, in Canatlan, Durango, Mexico. Um, and so she, and this is back, you know, I don't know, 70s, whatever that was, in the small little town. And so for her, when she got to a certain age, my grandmother was like, that's it. There is no more. And she wanted to do more, but she like couldn't. Wow. And so she was kind of helping her, her, her mom in Mexico, like work until the time came for her when her aunt was like, if you come to the United States, I'll help you come to school here. And so my mom came here at 15. So we have very similar stories, my mom and I, right? Like, and that really grounds and inspires my story. She left at 15 to go seek something better and came to the U.S. And then it was like history repeated itself. I was in like the, you know, accelerated reading and math classes and my, my high school, my grade school counselor was like, you should apply for the scholarship to go to a private school, a Chicago private school, one of the Catholic schools that were in the community. And I did. And when I interviewed, they were like, hmm, we think you with your test scores, your personality, personality was huge. Um, and it just, I guess, how open I was, I guess, through the interview, uh, we think you should go to a boarding school. And they had just started expanding, giving scholarships to kids from the inner city of Chicago to these prep schools. And so they were starting to build these relationships with Exeter, Andover, the Kate School, Culver, Thatcher, like all these boarding schools out east and west, and even in the Midwest. And they were like, we think this could be the school that she would do really well in. And at first, Swear to God, when my mom started bringing this up to my tias, they like no me bajaban de puta. They were like, "She's gonna get pregnant. She's gonna live at a school with boys." Oh no! And they were putting all these ideas in my mom's head on why they shouldn't let a 14-year-old girl go to a school in another state where she was unsupervised by her parents. Mm -hmm. And so it was like really tough on my mom. And, and now as an adult, I have like very real and raw conversations. I'm like, what, what, like, like what, what were you thinking? Letting, you know, this, everyone's telling yeah. you this, but she was like, I, she said, she put, she, she thought about me and, and, and kind of her situation. And she said, I would have done anything for my parents to have helped me go 
you know, seguir adelante con la escuela. And, and I didn't have that opportunity and I was not going to stop you. And I talk to her now again about like the bravery that take and the courage, right? And the fearlessness as a mom, but also this, this intense desire to have your kids seguir adelante that I, I don't, I can't even imagine. And that was kind of how that conversation went. We, the scholarship would fly me to school and she would, they also flew my mom to come visit me once a year, which I thought was really great. And she, to be honest, how I got through that is she, she just never talked to me about kind of what she was going through. So not only was it my family, but it was also the people at work on, she's not going to make it. She's going to come home. Guarantee you, she's going to get homesick. Oh, you, she does, she's not going to make it. Everyone at her job would tell her this at this factory where she works. She still works there now, wow. actually. And what's interesting is how full circle that has come because not only did I make it, not only did I then get a full ride to college and start my career in advertising and marketing, but now I work at the, the largest, most well-known tech company in the world. And her coworkers are, oh, they're, we're so proud of that. Mom said, oh, she's done so much. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, a, it's funny how roles really change and how they're eating their, their own shit talking now because <laughs> uh, now they're, you know, it's just, it's, it's just, it's just interesting how, how life happens and how cyclical it can be. Wow. And she didn't tell you any of those things until like a few years ago. Yeah. Until we were, until we were much older. What about for you though? Like your mom was going through some of these things on her own. She wasn't communicating these things with you, but for you, like it was a big deal as well. Like, again, like what you were 14 going away to like this place that you've never been before. And for the first time ever, like it's around people that don't really look like you that you probably couldn't relate to. Like, what was that first day? Like, what was that first flight? Like, well, the first flight was fine. So I was with my mom and we went around to the store. So I got everything we needed to, you know, my, I had my own room. I never had all my own room. So I got to school and I had my own room. That was wild. And oh my so God. I, By the way, same thing for me. I didn't get my own room until I went away to college. Right. Me and my brother had bunk beds. <laughs> so that was really, I was like, okay, I get my own room. And it was, it was interesting because I really, I, I probably went into it just like so excited. Also 1998, 99, 2000, Harry Potter was huge. So my idea of what I was walking into was based on this little British boy with glasses and a lightning bolt scar. So that was a little bit of kind of like what I was thinking about it going in. But when I got there, I, I think it just speaks to like who I was as a 14 year old. Clearly the scholarship saw this and I got there and was like, I'm starting to make friends and I am gonna figure this out. And I think it just had this, it, it probably best exemplifies my own sense of self agency that I guess I've always had. Um, and I just started figuring it out and, and making friends where I could and just started to learn and navigate this world. The good thing is I'm there with other 14 year olds. So it's not like we, and our class was really small. So it was only 80 of us, I think it was like 87 exactly the first year. And then our class doubles the sophomore year. So the school is really enriched in a lot of tradition and they really have a lot of things that really support the school. Like at work, we have employee resource groups, but then we had clubs. And so I was part of the Latino association. I would go to the Dear Black Student Coalition, like make friends with the other minorities was like project number one. And those are some of the friendships I still have now to this day. So shout out to my class of 2005 minorities. <laughs> hey. so, um, but we, we really kind of just like, we're figuring it all out together. And, and I think that the, the focus really when you live at school is school. So I was really just like threw myself into academics and figuring it all out. I mean, you said it, you said it before too, like these years are so formative, right? Like 
how much do you think your identity started to form or even like change a little bit compared to like how you grew up? Like, I'm sure when you went back home, people might've looked at you like, you look, look a little different. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm back to my hoops like before I left, but, um, <laughs> so that definitely came back, but for sure there, I mean, everybody explores and changes kind of like who they are and they start trying to figure out what different groups, you know, I think, um, as I look at my four years, I, I, I think that also the, the things that I even had, that I even had the chance to be exposed to changed who I am. So, you know, you go to a school like that and like my first winter, you could pick like a sport or an activity and my activity was the step team. Why? Because all the other minority girls were doing it and those were my friends. And so we did that together and it was really great and formative and like built some really great friendships and bonds. And it was also fun to do, right? But then my sophomore year, my, I don't know if it was my French, a French teacher or a Spanish teacher who was like, oh, why, why don't you try, you know, a different recreational activity? Why don't you try like skiing? You could learn to ski. You know, that's something you can't do in Chicago. And I was like, ski? I don't have skis. Like, what? Like, I, don't, I don't know how to ski. And she's like, well, they'll, they'll teach you. And we have a ski lift at the school. And I was like, what? What? exactly the same reaction so but then but that's the thing like I was a brave ass 14 year old at then 15 year old girl and I was like okay and so she told me she's like you can borrow my skis you're like what's your what's your shoe size and so literally like this I must have been my I must have been my Sinbronisi but anyway like I, like I had a teacher let me borrow their skis and I learned how to ski and so I skied five days a week for three winters at this school and so when you think about like my interest as an adult now to want to go to the Alps and ski in the Rockies and go to Vermont. Well, then we take weekends up to Vermont because we're in Massachusetts. Like I'm now interested in skiing as a winter activity because I even had the chance to be exposed to that. And that's something I would never have had. That's just like one example. Uh, but I think even the, the desire, and I would argue is competition to go to the best school. I always wanted to go to a better school. That's why I applied to the scholarship at 14. But when I, when I got to this school, it was a whole other level. Like half of my class went to an Ivy League school when I graduated. Like there was probably out of a class of 150, probably 70 went to an Ivy League, if not a top tier school, because it's just kind of the expectation. These are feeder schools, right? And so when you're surrounded around this, one, I swear to God, no one ever cheated at this school. It wasn't, let me copy your homework. Oh, I didn't do it. Or, because you're competing against that person who wants that spot at Harvard, at Yale, at Penn. And so there was a sense of like, you got to do it on your own. And there was a sense of like, you got to be the best. And I think that as I think about me entering even a tech company, like how am I able to survive at a company like this that moves as quickly, that has such brilliant people is because I was like, it was ingrained in me over four years to be the best, to make a plan, to have an action and do it on your own and collaborate what you need to. Of course, it wasn't like I was always on my own, but like, that, 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 that kind of behavior is definitely cemented during those four years. And that affects who I am and how I show up, for sure. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, it is a privilege to be in some of those spaces because it does open your eyes to things that you would have never even tried. I mean, this is really random and it, it's probably funny to some people, but like the first time I've ever had sushi was at a client dinner. Uh -huh. And they were like, they were like, oh, Pavel, what, do you, what, what kind of sushi do you want? And I was like, uh, you order for me. I trust your judgment. That's what I said. And they ordered, I don't know, probably some like basic like salmon or spicy tuna roll. And I was like, oh, th this is good. But like, I would have never even tried to have sushi. Like if I was ordering any sort of Asian 
food growing up. It was like fried chicken or like, you know, something that like isn't exactly like fried rice or something like that. So that's a very simple example. But yeah, like I've also been exposed to some things that I would have never been exposed to if I didn't put myself in those um, certain circles. Uh, What about about, for you though? Like, was there anything in, in college that you feel like was like, something that you could would never have been exposed to and also that was different though than everyone at home something that i was exposed to in college i mean i feel like i didn't start well actually yeah no actually i started eating like pretty healthy in college um because like you go you know you have these meal swipes and and then mm-hmm uh like I didn't I didn't really like buy food to cook right and I'm so used to being at home and just eating like you know Dominican food which is like platanos um you know rice guandulas chicken all that kind of stuff and uh yeah I started eating vegetables which sounds so basic but like I didn't eat vegetables at home (laughs) like I mean like some some things like salad like I remember I started I had like a uh, a banana pepper for the first time and my friend was like oh try this I was like Ew, I'm not trying that um so it was just like little things that for a lot of people seem so basic but for me it was like opening my eyes to this whole new world um so yeah now that I think about it yeah I, I think mostly from like a food perspective I mean and food's huge too because like even this I think it just goes to that that experience and this doesn't have conversation doesn't have to be all about that but it does like you're right it is so yeah. critical to who my identity like who I am and, and who like how I'm going to show up in all of the spaces whether I tone it up or tone it down you know code switch or whatever but at the school the way that the, the work the work week the school week <laughs> I'm too caught up in work the way that the that the school week was structured is we would have sit down meals and walk through meals and you imagine I'm 14 years old. I've never been taught how to sit at a table and have a family meal. My mom was working 12 hours at a factory and she expected me to have either fed myself, but definitely clean the house before she got home at seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. And so there was always the sense of like independence when I was growing up that I had that kind of switched and became very communal when I was at the school. So we would have at the dining hall, which is a whole big dining hall, there were 60 tables for 10 people each. Every table would have a teacher and everyone would stand at the table before the meal started. And then students would take turns being like first or second waiter. So first waiter would bring the food and it was all buffet family style, or not buffet, family style. And the teacher, the plates would be next to where the teacher sat and the teacher would serve one. You'd take the plate and make it to all the way around to the person next to him to his left or her left. And we would do that. And then just the, like the idea of like multiple forks and knives, like how and where yeah. thread plate goes, like those types of things I had to learn really quickly because that was kind of the, the, the way that these meals were structured. And so that's something I took away that was very different. So now when, I, even now my husband laughs at me all the time, today's Friday, we're probably gonna order a pizza. I will serve myself on a plate and I will take out a fork and knife by default. Like he, he laughs at me and he like cracks jokes on me. He's like, how are you going to eat pizza with fork and knife? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, it just, I just do. It's my default. And so we talk about people laughing at me. Like if I sit down or I'm at a, like a, like a dinner or anything with like my family, I like take out the napkin. I put it on my lap. I, I never keep my elbows on the table. I just, from so many years of doing it for such like formative years, I like can't, not do it it's crazy yeah 
I, I actually, speaking of food, I remember like one of my early uh, dinners for work. And I mean, after I tried sushi for the first time, my mind was blown. Um, I remember, I mean, something as simple as like the bread would come around, you know, like when you're at a restaurant and I'm just like, how do other people eat bread? Like, do they cut it down the middle first and then apply the butter? Do they just bite right into it? And I was so like scared to eat bread first because I was like, I think I'm going to do it wrong. I want to see someone else do it first. So like I like just drank water for like a few minutes and waited for someone else to eat. And then I copied what they did. I mean, oh my God, when, when fucking, when oysters came out, I was like, what, what do people do with this? <laughs> it's, it's, but it's, it's, I don't think enough people talk about like some of those things or just like, I don't know what to do here. Oh my God. There was another incident. Like, all right. So I'm only child and um, I didn't know how to share growing up. Like at home, I had like, I had my own cup. My grandma had her own cup. Like my mom had her own thing. So like, I remember I brought this, um, you know, these cups that you put in the freezer and they're kind of like liquid on the outside. You put them in the freezer and they're like, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. exactly. So I had my cup and I put it in the freezer and then I, I went over to class, whatever, came back. And then one of my roommates was drinking out of my cup and I went fucking crazy. Like, I was like, what do you do? And he was like, bro, what do you, are you serious? In my mind, though, like, I didn't register that, like, I had to share things with people. It would, oh, my God. Yeah, so many things in college, I don't think about it. You bring back so many memories. Yeah, but I think, it, you know, what's funny is that, like, it all goes back to how we show up and then how you, like, when you go into new spaces, like, you, you might not have, you know, you had your own thing growing up. You go into this communal place, this very different environment. It teaches you new things. And then all of those things, the before, the what you learned there are part of who you are right now. And I think that what, that's what makes it so complicated is that like most people live in that type of world their whole lives and they're not jumping into all these spaces. And I think that just gives us agility, right? As Latinos, because now like I know how to act and I don't, you know, I'm not gonna be like, oh, Abuelita, you have to put your napkin on your lap when you're eating the pozole. Like if she's gonna, she likes to put the, the thing here. Why? Because pozole splashes and she doesn't want to get it on her mantel, which I was like, isn't the mantel supposed to protect your foot? But anyway, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's, it's just, it's interesting that, that, um, that we can navigate and have that agility. And that's what makes us such expert code switchers, you know, whether it's at work, whether it's us at schools, uh, even with our friends now, you know, before and after work weekends, you know, you know, I've talked a lot about that and I've <laughs> uh, done some funny bits about what it's like acting with your coworkers and the, the Monday morning, how was your weekend? Well, how, how much, how much of it these days though, is you like work, for example, right? Like how much of it is you like code switching and acting versus just being honest with people and just saying like, you know, this is what I did during the weekend or like, this is what I'm interested in, or, you know, this is me. Like, how much is it? I'm not doing anything now on the weekend. So <laughs> <laughs> there's that. Uh, but I, I think now, you know, it's interesting because I feel like you, you're, I'm on video calls all day and people are in my home. And so it just feels like I'm in my arena and you're virtually entering my arena and I'm virtually entering yours. And, and so there is a sense of like your guard being down a little bit versus had I been at work. Um, though I think I'm being more bold and audacious. And I think that goes back to just where I am now in my almost mid thirties and having had all this experience, both professional working at three different companies, having gone to college and the school and where I grew up, um, 
also I'm spending a lot more time virtually connecting with my family. So I'm spending a lot more time being my, my true, true authentic self and, and talking about topics and things that are relevant to the Latino community um, and just our lives and our interests. Um, and so there, it's almost like they're all, they're all virtual. So whether it's my work or my family, it's all virtual. So it starts to blend and get real blurry real quick. Um, but I think I'm much more open to, you know, right now during COVID, my mother-in-law is living with us um, for a variety of reasons. Housing had to change for her. And that, that's, a, that's a very normal thing for the Latino community. Like somebody, you know, your mother-in-law or whoever needs some place to stay, they stay with you. And my, my coworkers and stuff, they'll, you know, we'll be on a call by, oh, here's my mother-in-law. And like, I, I don't even try to hide it in any way. And, and it's not that I would have hit it before, but I'm less keen to think that that's something I shouldn't say or, or tell her to like go into another room. I'm just like, this is my house. You live here and that's the reality. So I think that's something that I'm kind of thinking about differently. I do think COVID has had a huge impact on the way that people are like, you know, just showing themselves like the amount of calls where like kids just jump in on the, and just interrupt. It's, it, I mean, first of all, it's adorable. I'm like a sucker for babies and kids. They're the cutest. Uh, yeah, like, oh, pets, yes. Um, but yeah, like before, like people would have been so embarrassed about it, but now people are like, yeah, you know, this is, this is my life. It's kind of dope. I love it. Um, yeah, I wait, love but, it but when, when is a time where you actually felt like you had to, or when did you feel that, when did you ever feel the need to hide who you were though? Cause now it seems like, like you said, you're confident, you show people your house and all these things and your family, but I'm sure there was a time where you felt uncomfortable though. Like tell me about that. You know, I think it's funny because I don't think we actively choose to hide. I think we just default as like a defense mechanism. And I think what the thing, the, 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 the act of hiding is, I think is actually like more subconscious versus I think what ends up happening to a lot of Latinos that I've been talking to, or just my friends is that we, we the action we most feel is the unhiding. So I know, at, you know, at Facebook, we have a Latina community. We have the Latino group, of course, for everyone Latin app, but then we have a, a, a subgroup of the Latinas, and we talk about a lot of things that are specific to, oh, we have the hombres at too. You got It's a secret. It, well, ours this is a secret, secret group? Ours is, the Latinas want a secret, but there's an well, hombres one. There's hombres at. It's not a secret anymore, you know. Well, they're, but they're, they're secret and they're like, it's moderated, but. Yeah. What I was saying is in this group, we've been, we actually been having a lot, a lot of conversation on how our lives are changing around um, like COVID, work from home, and hair is like the number one topic. We are like, I feel like we're always chatting about that. And that's the one place where a lot of people have said like, I never chose to hide. Like, I don't think there was a, like, there wasn't a purposeful, like, oh, I'm going to hide the way I look and how I show up at work. But it was always like, we were just like conditioned societally to think straight, beautiful, you know, straight hair, uh, perfect, perfectly done is, is beautiful or normal or professional, right? You think even after Latinas, natural hair is definitely not what the workplace is telling you is okay. And so now I'm starting to have so many more conversations with other Latinas and inclusive of Afro Latinas at, at work about like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to do that to our hair anymore. We're actually going to embrace it. We're going to lean into it. We're going to show up this way because this is who we are and it's part of our authentic self and we've had I mean literally like I, I think we we're on a, a like a I don't know if it was the holiday zoom call we had where we all just like chit chat and catch up uh but someone's like we need to have like the Latinas at curly hair convention call because we need to talk about like what products are we using what works what doesn't work um and and I, I love the conversation because I think it helps address um one colorism 
because we have textured hair and textured hair is a spectrum, right? And you know, with Latinas, there's a big spectrum on what we, our skin is, but also what our hair can be. And I think that the more we have conversations I think we address it, but also we learn and create greater unity, right? Because I'm learning a lot about how Afro-Latinas are actually men, what products they're using and they're helping me. And then we're having those like conversations around like, why have we not ever like had, why, why aren't, why, why hasn't there been a Latina hair community where we could have all been sharing this to begin with? It's because we've been suppressing and ignoring and not talking about the colors and that actually exists in the community. But now that we've kind of just been like addressed it, we're actually finding unity in sharing. So I found that really awesome. But at work, I think the hair piece is, is really critical. The amount of comments though I get now, like, oh my God, your hair is so big, or I didn't know your hair was straight. I mean, that your hair was curly. I'm like, mm -hmm. it is, and here it is. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, uh, it's funny, like it wasn't until quarantine when I started growing my hair out. Well, not mm -hmm. purposely, but just like, I couldn't get a haircut where my hair started to grow out curly. And I was like, I have curly hair? I was like, mom, do you have curly hair? Because um, I've never, ever, ever seen my mom with her natural hair. Like every single morning, every morning, she blow dries it, she straightens it with the rollos. She doesn't even go to work now. Like she's retired, she still does it. But wow. it's, to the, it's to the point where her hair isn't curly anymore. But I was like, mom, did you have this? And she's like, yeah. But like for so long, I think she's just been, again, conditioned to believe that like that's how you have to show up to work. Yeah, so I think that's what I'm saying. Like, it's not like she's been hiding the fact that she has curly hair. It's just she was just conditioned. And so I think that awakening or that, that action, that change happens when you say, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm actually going to lean into it, learn how to work with it. And for me, it's created a community of friends where like that's what we talk about. And that's kind of like how we're helping each other um, better understand not to use sulfates. Yeah. I mean, there's so many dope brands that are like highlighting some of that as well. Um, yeah, I, I love it. Um, what uh, is, is that like the main thing that really like inspires you to start being more of yourself? Is it like the pockets of community that you found in certain spaces? Or like, you know, what is the thing that just like, got you to flip the switch, but well, not necessarily flip the switch, because you weren't doing necessarily this like consciously, right? Some of it was just like, unconsciously, but um. There must have been a moment where you were just like, I want to be more of myself and I want to lean into like more of my roots and back to who I was. Like, was there a moment or was it just like this buildup? Yeah, I think it's, I think there are kind of a lot of moments throughout my life. So, you know, I told you, I grew up in a Latino community on the South Side of Chicago. I went to this East Coast boarding school, but then for college, I kind of came back to the Midwest and went to Marquette, which was kind of an in-between because it was Midwest. So it wasn't like East Coast anymore, but it was still a predominantly white institution. So what one of the things that I that happened was I actually joined a Latina, a historically Latina, but really a multicultural sorority, Sigma Lambda Gamma, when I was there. And I cultivated a, a really strong friendships with a, actually a very diverse group of women. And that really kind of carried me for the, you know, for my my college experience. And it was kind of that first retro culturation of going back to um, my my roots. Like even in the dorm, my um one of the other, one of my uh, friends ended up on Dia de los Reyes Magos. We were, we were back at school already and she came over and she put um, my shoes out. She took the shoes from my room, put them outside my door and put, brought an orange and like a gift for Dia de los Reyes Magos. And it was one of those things where I was like, 
this is not happening across college campuses, I guarantee it, right? And so it was one of those things that was like, I'm glad I had these two experiences and I started really understanding how I could balance these two at any given time. And so that was like one really critical thing. And then when I started going through in, into my career, the resource groups that these companies create and, and starting getting really close to them was always something I did. We had Ola at Starcom when I was there. And then when I was at Pandora, it was Mixtape. And here at Facebook, we had Lanat. And always just staying involved. I think those communities really do help me understand that like you can balance both because it's, it's, it's bringing together all the Latino community in that new predominantly white work environment. So I think that's always something that's been really helpful and probably why I've taken the sense of responsibility to serve and connect others. So, you know, now I, I'm the global lead for Latinat at Facebook and I do it not because I want like this schmancy title or I want to be, I want extra, you know, 10 hours of work a week, but because I think I feel the sense of responsibility to create connections, to inspire others, but also to get to help everyone salir adelante, like whether it's in your career, as a person, like I fundamentally believe that if you, you know, in your, in your employment, like you could have a transformative professional experience through these resource groups, because you have people who are like you, who understand you, who maybe are facing similar challenges, but also who probably grew up with the same behaviors or habits that are probably the thing that are either holding you back or are preventing you from moving forward. And then we also have examples of the people who did it. You have a proximity, right? So when the VPs come in and talk to the community, I love seeing that because being part of this community gives me access to that Latino VP in a way that had I just been doing my job heads down, I would never have connected with. And so I think that these groups are so, so critical, um, particularly in the workplace. A hundred percent. I mean, personal anecdote for me, like I remember I was having like a really difficult time in my first year at Facebook and yeah, I mean, it was tough. I was going to quit at one point. And um, it wasn't until I went to uh, Black Leadership Day and I went to Latinat Leadership Day, which is not like community summits is called, where I saw people that looked like me that had that balance of just like, I know what the fuck I'm doing, but also have the swag and I'm bringing it all together at the same time. Um, but like, it's one thing seeing these people at like an individual contributor level, like you and I, nah, these are like VPs, directors, at CMOs, what Antonio, like it was, it was the inspiration I needed to be like, oh shit, like I don't have to code switch. I can be myself and I could be at their position. Like for yeah. me, I always thought it had to be either or. It's like either I'm the CMO, but I leave my culture aside or I can bring my culture, but I'm never gonna be that high at the company. You know what I mean? Yeah, like no, that's right. that's when I feel that's when I feel the most comfortable at work like at, <laughs> at those events and when I'm like surrounded by like those people not only that look like me but are doing dope shit yeah that are doing it doing the what, most yeah what about you like is there like a certain is, is it the same feeling for you like when you're surrounded in those areas yeah, I think for me, I, I love going, so the Leadership Day brings together all the Latino employees or all the Black employees to each of these community summits. This, this last year, you know, it was great having them both back to back. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. Loved that. And I love being part of the planning uh, and, and kind of bringing that together. Um, I do see it as like a creative outlet for myself because, you know, I think 
I planned the Community Summit in 2019 and thinking about the content and what story I felt could really help create what, this collective call to leadership. Like that's really what I want. I want Latinos to be perceived as leaders, especially in the workplace. And so when I was thinking about that day, I wanted to show how each uh, part of our company has an opportunity for Latinos to impact. So when we were up there and showing the Latino small-owned businesses, I was like, it's Latinos around the company and the company that are really supporting this community and our community benefits from it. That should inspire you, right? And then we even had the culture creators and had the two Instagrammers, Instagram creators come. Like that was also something of like, we're out there creating content that's super engaging and being enjoyed by Latinos and non-Latinos everywhere on these platforms. Um, and so just to create the greater connection between what we do at work and how the Latino community shows up and how those are connected. That continues to be the inspiration for me is seeing that come to life. I love seeing media partners use our platform to get information out to a community that they wouldn't otherwise have had the opportunity to. Um, but especially right now, just going through COVID, seeing how much work the company's doing to support Black and Latino-owned business, though that inspires me to want to continue to hire the best people, to do the, my best work, um, because by doing that, I know I'm stepping into my like place of power, and then I'm also um, being able to create a connection to a community that's bigger than just my job. Like if, if, if your job is the only thing that inspires you and the specific tasks you're responsible for, what are you going to do when you have a bad day or you hate your boss or you hate your team or you reorg for the seventh time? Like you start losing that momentum. So it has to be about more than just your job at work. And these groups so inspire you uh, and create connections to what the bigger picture is. Yo, I struggle with that so much. I think like my, my job is cool, but I don't like love it. I don't love it. Um, and I think it's because I don't have that I don't feel that sense of purpose and I haven't found that sense of purpose. I like ties what I'm passionate about outside of work and also being able to bridge that inside of work as well. Um, like when, when did you find that? And like, what helped you find that? I pause up purposely let you finish. So like cough. <laughs> Give me a second. <clears throat> yeah. No. Okay. Cause I mean, in, in so many ways you're, you're, you're building representation that like in through your eyes, you don't necessarily see all the time, right? Yeah, I think so. I just recently moved roles. I was in a very B2B marketing role and I moved into a recruiting marketing role inside the recruiting org. First of all, I didn't even know the recruiting team had like a marketing team, uh, but it's called employer, our employer brand team. And they're there, they run all of our careers, websites and channels. Um, and they're there to really help the recruiting org supercharge uh, finding candidates to fill the the tens of thousands of jobs we have to fill every year because we're growing so much. So we're a big enough company that we need a team to kind of come um, and help us. And, you know, when the role that I'm in now came up, it was almost like the perfect combination of all of my professional purpose coming together. So one, being a classically trained marketer. Marketing is, is my skill set. It is where I'm going to grow and develop my own career to this role that I'm in is specifically around diversity recruiting. And so it is really centered around helping hire underrepresented people globally in every region, whatever that might be, and helping those teams accelerate that hiring. And 
it really was also an opportunity to think about how my work as a, a Latinx lead created greater connections to the resource groups and recruiting because they want to be able to support that and they just don't know how. So then I could become this great liaison. And so in this role, I came into it thinking that if I could help create a diversity-driven employer brand, we default to being the place where underrepresented people want to work. So you think about a brand like Patagonia, which everyone at our company wears, big tech, tech brand I feel like everyone wears, uh, but also like hikers and things. Um, but if you think about that brand, you think sustainability. You think about their competitor North Face, you think performance. That's the brand reputation those brands have built. I want people to hear like Facebook and think diversity. And so that really was the purpose that I came into this brand, particularly when you're thinking about it from like an employment perspective. I think there's there's a consumer side and there's a business side because our Facebook is so complex um, and just huge. And so when I thought about it from the employer side, my hope was that when people would think of that name, that's what they would think because that's the message that we're putting out. And so in my work, I, I work really horizontally with every region across different teams to create a diversity driven brand because my ultimate professional purpose that is outside of anywhere I work, because I could work not at Facebook tomorrow, is to normalize multiculturalism in employment in tech. And really just normalize multiculturalism. And that's always been the thing that drove me. And it was on, when I was on the agency side, I was trying to normalize multiculturalism in CPG products, because that's the, the, the account that I was on. I was in a huge CPG account. When I then moved to Pandora, I was helping normalize multiculturalism through the marketing that the brands were doing on the platform, specifically around music. And then here, when I came to Facebook and started doing B2B, I came here to do multicultural market, business marketing. So helping brands understand that they could reach diverse consumers on the platform because that's where they were. And we could do it better, more efficiently and effectively than any other channel, better than TV and radio and print and at a home and all that. Because El Face... Instagram and WhatsApp, this is where all the Latinos are. This is where all of the underrepresented consumers are, right? Across all of our apps. And so that, that you, see, you can see how normalizing multiculturalism was part of every single step of every kind of job that I've had. And that's ultimately what drives me. So when I have like a bad half or, you know, team reorgs and there's ambiguity, I just stay to my North Star. Everything I need to do is in service of normalizing multiculturalism. Because if I put ads out there and I work on campaigns that are for the purposes of employing for Facebook, but they are, they, they, they represent the full spectrum of the dimensions of diversity. Even if that, even if an underrepresented person sees that and doesn't necessarily take the action, think about how many other people are seeing that ad. And it, it normalizes for them that, that the the black engineer is a normal thing. Being a Latina head of finance is a normal thing. That having a woman run product is very normal. A new and Asian woman run product. It normalizes that for not only the people who get to see themselves reflected, but for everyone else. And so I think about the impact that advertising can have, and that for me is it. And that's how it centers me in my in my career. And I think having confidence that I'm doing everything I can to that goal is what gives me that confidence to push boundaries, to test my leaders, to ask provocative questions, because I'm going to hold them to account. I love that. I think I just found my North Star. Good. 
good. I mean, you can do it every day in your role on the account that you're on, no matter what account you're on. If that is your North Star, it's going to get you through that high sev that comes in that blows up your campaign or that, you know, that, oh, we forgot to add the measurement thing to this A-B test we're running, but it's okay because we're going to do it again and we're going to do it in service of that. Did you, did you not feel like these things were normalized when you were coming up or do you not feel like it's normalized now? No, I mean, I think I, I think about what I used to watch growing up and it was shows like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? I would watch like, well, this, this is stuff that I watch, but I would watch a lot of black families on television, but I never saw Latino families. I mean, you saw the white families, you saw the black families. I never saw the Latino families. And I think the only time I saw them was on the novelas and the channels in Spanish. And so it just, you never really think about how you don't see yourself represented. You do see what you do see, but you don't what you don't. So then you don't know. And, and so the more that I started working particularly on the CPG brands and just saying like, oh, wow, here's a Tide commercial that has an abuelita, a mom, and a daughter all talking in English and Spanish about laundry. I was like, well, yeah, that's exactly what it was like for me. So of course that would be normal, but it didn't even occur to me that I had never seen that before. There were no Latinos in, in Tide commercials when I was growing up. It wasn't until I was like on the teams that were helping push these brands to do that, that we started seeing them, right? Seeing same sex couples in, in Campbell's Soup ads you never noticed that you never saw that before um, until you start seeing it. And then you're like, yeah, this should be normal. Why isn't this normal? And so I think being able to push brands uh, for that, and that goes out to anyone working in marketing now, like every little bit counts. They don't have to do a full dedicated campaign. Maybe it starts with casting and then it starts with the targeting and really investing. I do want it to get to the investing in the minority owned specific channels that are dedicated, of course. Um, but you've got to start by starting. I love that. And I love that. And we're, and we're out of time pretty much. So I'll, I'll finish with this last question. Like what's one thing that continues to inspire and empower you to continue being your most authentic self? The thing that inspires me is just the responsibility to serve because I think I have had, I recognize how much exposure to so many different spaces has led to me being who I am. And so I'm always thinking about how I can expose others to more because the more they're exposed to, the more they, they can see possibility. And then I hope ultimately see themselves not only in those spaces, but leading and winning in those spaces.